Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of The Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Steve. So if you guys are just clicking on this for your first time around with our podcast, Steve and I have both been living with type 1 diabetes since we were 15. We're both endocrinologists. We work at the University of California, San Diego, where we do research and uh, clinical care. And Steve founded uh, Taking Control of Your Diabetes, which is a a not-for-profit organization. We've been doing this podcast for a little over a year now, and I, I love it. You know what? We we've, we've have a great group of people who follow us, and it inspires us to keep getting new topics and reaching more people who like that form of education. Mm-hmm. If you, like you said, if you like to listen with your ears, <laughs> podcasts are for you. I said that you, once, you, and you, you never it, forget and it. And you said it seriously, though. It wasn't a joke. But I liked it. So anyways, what is today's comp- uh, complicated? What is today's topic? So we're calling it the facts about diabetes complications. Um, and... I kind of always like to say, why are we doing this topic? Well, when it be, when we're honest, you know, why do we care about our blood sugars with diabetes? And the whole name of the game is to avoid complications and potentially a better way of saying that is just to stay healthy. I wouldn't care if my blood sugar was 400 if it didn't cause any, you know, health problems. But I do care when my blood sugar is high that, you know, I want to avoid problems with my eyes, my feet, my kidneys, kind of all these types of things. So... It is really the reason why we toil over diabetes is to just to try to keep ourselves healthy. Yeah, what reminded me when you're saying this is that we did a podcast on hypoglycemia, and that's on the minds of every person who takes insulin. Uh, and what is else on our minds is all the stories that we hear about going blind, being on dialysis, losing a limb, having a heart attack. I mean, that has to be on our minds as well as folks living with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. Yeah, not to mention Aunt May at every Thanksgiving, you know, telling you don't eat that or butcher's you're going to go high. And I had a friend who, you know, went blind. It's just like we don't know that already, you know. So, and of course, then when you are on your CGM, you test your blood sugar and you see that 300 or whatever, it, it's so natural just to get so angry like because you're working so hard to, to to keep your numbers in range and is this doing damage is this causing problems and so we're here to kind of unpack a lot of that yeah a lot of other emotions than anger yeah uh, like some people get frustrated they get depressed you don't like when i say angry well you you get angry <laughs> and you think everyone else gets angry or sad or whatever you yeah, yeah you have an okay. emotional response to it sometimes yeah, but... you just get super happy <laughs> <laughs> no i mean you i'm not putting you down but you for you you should get on the couch okay. you always it diabetes makes you angry. It does. What does it make you? It makes me frustrated. Okay, that's the same thing. I'm just I'm able to label it a little bit better than you. You should get on the couch. <laughs> all right. So first of all, you know, let's talk about the kind of history of, of of making the link between high blood sugar values and complications. And it's kind of interesting that that's a duh now that we know that when you have you know, years of high blood sugars, that that's what actually leads to these complications. But that wasn't always the case. We didn't really know that those things were linked. And it wasn't really until the early 90s that we definitively proved that. And so I think a little bit of kind of history on this, of talking about this, this important study, it's called the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, or the DCCT. And Steve, you kind of, you were there, um, you know, when this, like these results kind of came out. So you saw what diabetes care was like before this, and then maybe tell us what the results showed and what that meant and how that kind of shaped 
care going forward. Yeah, it was one of the most important studies in diabetes. And before its publication in 1993, the, the DCCT was started 10 years prior. And they took a group of people with type 1 uh, and 1,400 people. They split them up. So you're going to get the, the typical care at the time, which is urine testing, no more than one shot a day, no insulin pumps, nothing fancy. And the other group got insulin pump therapy, two or more injections a day, testing with the finger stick, because back then, CGM wasn't even a thought. Mm -hmm. So it was either urine testing or pricking your finger and getting an actual number. And they followed these people for 10 years, and the study was actually stopped early because they saw that the complications, the initiation of complications like eye kidney and nerve disease, and for those who had those conditions, but when they entered the study, the progression was much slower in the group that had what we call intensive glycemic control, where the average A1C was seven. Mm -hmm. And the average A1C in the group that they just said conventional therapy, what was out in the community, was 9%. Now, Jeremy, I was a, I was a young uh you know, resident fellow at the time. I was in the audience in Las Vegas Convention Center, 1993, where they announced the results. You know, it was like, took like three hours. And um, later on, uh, you know, they- Did you say it, it was like standing room only? Oh, like this yeah. This was like the hottest it, ticket in town kind of thing? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> remind me of the video he did mm -hmm. in the tent. But the thing is, I was asked to be involved as a younger physician in the DCCT study that was being run out of San Diego. I did part of my training like you did. And I actually refused because I felt strongly that I could not let people with type 1 go sweet. And there were several studies already completed, not as big, not as expansive. The steno study, a lot of studies showed that if you take the time to improve someone's blood sugars over the long term, you can prevent the onset and delay the progression of diabetic complications. And, um, in retrospect, I'm glad this study was done. It was the mo one of the most expensive studies at the time because it helped convince practicing physicians that they should actually uh, take the time and effort to control their patients' blood sugars. Now, if you can imagine, before this study, a lot of doctors just said, well, it's never been proven that tight control prevents complications, so I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. And that's what's so amazing. One point that's so amazing to me is that you said the, the kind of standard group had an A1C of 9, and that was completely acceptable at that time. And you mentioned that the results were published in 1993. Like, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And interestingly, I always say that I was diagnosed in 94. So it was right around this time that I kind of caught this wave of when I was diagnosed. It was always, you got to control your blood sugars to prevent complications. Very different than probably when you were diagnosed. It was kind of... Oh, you know, you're 15. We don't want to bother you with all these injections, right. like you know. But, but Jeremy, you you had a good doctor. Yeah. There are many doctors that uh, have a hard time keeping up with publications and big studies, and that leads to why I started taking control of your diabetes. Now, think about this publication, New England Journal of Medicine, 1993, and then uh, my observations. Uh, I was at UCSD, and I I said, how come? diabetes care was not improving at the community level because many doctors didn't hear about it. They didn't believe in about it. And it takes a long time, as you know, to, to get new medical information into the practice habits of physicians. Yeah. And the other point I just want to highlight real quick is that the results of this study were 
dramatic. I mean, this wasn't like a maybe, like you should maybe do this. This was just kind of cut and dry. When you get your A1C down, you know, the people's you know uh, con- or complications is less. And by the way, it wasn't if your your A1C is seven, you're good, and if it's above seven, it's bad. With every increment of control, they clearly showed benefit, going from ten to nine, nine to eight, eight to seven. And this is kind of where our seven percent comes from is that we have a lot of data now showing that if you keep your A1C around 7, that you can avoid complications. So so back to your story yeah. of now things aren't changing. Yeah, I, that, that's a great point. Uh, and we always talk about it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. When your blood sugars are high, you know, every 1% drop leads to reduction in complications. So, yeah, so, I mean, it was very frustrating for me. And I did a lot of medical education at that time, all about the DCCT. And in fact, our first TCOID's first... Uh, continuing medical education program for healthcare professionals was on the DCCT results. And I got so frustrated because things were changing too slowly. I said, okay, I'm going to take the important messages about living a long and healthy life directly to the people most affected by this, people living with diabetes and their loved ones. And that was the beginning of TCOID two years after the publication of the DCCT. So, um, you know, and I, I, I focused on patients for decade. And then I realized that we have to really uh, educate healthcare professionals and people with diabetes in a parallel fashion to create good communication between those two groups. So I gave up for healthcare on healthcare professionals for a while. Mm-hmm. I was so irked. I was angry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I came full circle that um, everyone has to know this information. And that's, that's the whole premise of TCOID, take control of your mm-hmm. diabetes. And I think the good news is that over time and with this publication and many, many others, that complications are coming down and people can get, you know, good control of, of their diabetes. But unfortunately, what has persisted, I think, is this, this idea that diabetes is still a death sentence, that you will get complications. It's just a matter of time. And that probably was the way it was, um, you know, prior to the DCCT, certainly kind of when you were diagnosed. And I know you've told stories of when you were in medical school and even when I was in medical school, you have diabetes, you just lost 15, 20 years of your life, which simply is not true anymore. But still to this day, those are the messages that people are here when they're diagnosed. Oh, you have diabetes, like, you know, just a matter of time before, you know, you lose your foot. And they might not even kind of understand that that's just, that's likely actually to not happen. Yeah. And, and add that. You know, so much of this depends on access to good care and good mm-hmm. therapy because, unfortunately, people aren't motivated. They don't have access. They don't even know about TCOID. They may have a caregiver that is fed up with someone who's not, quote, following their advice. And, unfortunately, we see it at UCSD all the time that people go through life with high A1Cs. They're the ones that develop complications. Yeah. And uh, for people listening... Um, there are a lot of people that go through life with de- bad control that do not get serious complications. And, uh, you know, there's so many other factors that lead to complications that we don't even know about. But in general, the duration and severity of hyperglycemia uh, relates to the development of these microvascular complications. Mm-hmm. And they do influence macro, too. And we'll differentiate the, those two in a second. Yeah. But that's the general rule of sum. And you don't, um, you know... D- 
You know, a lot of people say, oh, my blood sugar's at 350. Oh, my God, I'm going to get eye disease tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't work that way. It takes years and years of blood sugars. I always say consistently over 200. Yeah, exactly. And that is important because as much as I get angry or frustrated with these high (laughs) blips, it's reminding yourself, you know what, you get that blood sugar down and you kind of fight the fight the next day. Well, mention the publications that we always mention about comparing people with diabetes to non that are under good under decent yeah so actually following people from this dcct study now for decades they've been actually able to take those people and kind of match them with people that are their same age and other other factors and they found that the people with type 1 diabetes as long as they keep their a1c less than eight or so they tended to live just as long if not longer than people without diabetes so it's a little bit of separate things that, yes, you want to keep your A1C less than seven to avoid complications, but when it comes to kind of overall lifespan, as long as you're keeping it at eight or so less, that you should live a long and, and healthy life and potentially even longer than our non-diabetic friends. So that message, we just need to squash it. And I think that there's a chance- That makes me so angry. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a, a chance here to kind of think of diabetes as an opportunity. I know that takes like a a big leap for people. It's a lot of work. But what made me think about that is I actually have a friend of the family. um, She's a little bit older and has been worried about her blood sugar. So I actually just put a, a Dexcom on her and I'm following her blood sugars now. And I'm not kidding. I'm kind of hoping her blood sugars are a little high to get her some of these diabetes medications, the GLP-1s, like Ozempic. Because now, especially in the type 2 world and in type 1, there's so many medications that can help people lose weight. And, and so if you engage with it and you're not fearful of it, it can become a real opportunity. Yeah, and I should mention uh, for the folks with type 2 listening that they did similar studies mm-hmm. like the DCCT, but for people with type 2. Half of them under good control, the other half under... Uh, a, Poor control, I would say, the conventional therapy as it was at the time, and they showed similar results. You know, they weren't quite as clear-cut, but clearly very similar. And uh, studies have shown that if you have type 2 diabetes and you take care of the problems that are associated with type 2, not only glucose levels, but cardiovascular problems, that they can live a long and healthy life. And Jeremy, you know, it's really true that... I'll just mention in the type 2 world, if you have type 2, many of the uh, symptoms of high blood sugar are not there like us type 1s. And symptoms of high cholesterol, high blood pressure are not there either. But you might, you could have cholesterol levels through the roof, blood pressure pretty high, just short of a nosebleed, and you won't have any symptoms. But you get type 2, you get diagnosed, you get a decent healthcare professional, he gets those under control. There's no question you're going to live a much longer and healthier life because you were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So you're right, and I think it takes a mindset. It's, some people think we're crazy, but nec- for some of people getting diabetes, you just got to go, yes! Yeah. <laughs> because now, not only am I going to pay a lot more attention to the general health issues, but a lot of other areas uh, in my health that were ignored before may be uh, brought to attention of yeah. a healthcare professional. And I think another super important point that you always would say in your opening talks of the conference is it's never too late to take control of your diabetes. And that's so important because a lot of people say, well, gosh, I was diagnosed and, you know, I just, I was in denial for two, three, five years, whatever. My A1C was above 10 and it's just too late for me. Like the damage is done. Um, And that's not true. That if you get your blood sugars under control, um, 
you can still, you know, you still will have the benefits of that. And it's amazing that sometimes I'll see type ones that have had it for 40 years. And they said, well, you know, when I was a teenager, my A1C was over nine for two years. And they're just waiting for that to kind of catch up to them. And I just have to say like, no, like, you know, that's not, you're not always just kind of running away from that. You've done such a good job for 40 years, like have some, some confidence in it. So if you're sitting out there and you're one of those people, it, you can always engage. Yeah. And you know, good, good control makes you feel better on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. even if you have complications. Uh, but I, I, I really appreciate you saying that because that was the last slide of my talk for 25 years when we did those in-person lectures at convention centers, uh, you know, it's never too late to take control of diabetes. That brings back good feelings inside. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Jeremy. I know you've only heard that lecture maybe a hundred times, yeah. but, um, you know, and as most of you n- may not know is that when COVID hit, we converted to virtual and we're staying mostly virtual, uh, but not completely check out our website because we can reach people around the globe Mm -hmm. and we actually touch two and a half million people per month now and everything we do is free. But along Um, the like, it's never too late line. It's not just like if your A1C is high, but if you do have complications, like let's say that you have some eye disease, the same kind of mentality can sink in. Gosh, I've been, you know, working my butt off and I have this issue in my eye or my kidney, my doctor tells me my kidney function is down. Um, still getting tight control can still help. And then treating those 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 issues aggressively is, is, is helpful. So even if something has happened, um, that's actually a time that you want to be more engaged and more aggressive with your diabetes rather than kind of backing off. Yeah, you know, and you and I were talking before we started, what was care like uh, before the DCCT study? And your doctor was on it. And for me, I was, uh, you know, diagnosed 1970 and long before the DCCT was ever designed. And uh, I was given one shot of MPH in regular day. You know, for someone with type 1 and eating three meals a day, you know, you can imagine my, my A1C, if they had the A1C test, probably was above 10%. And not because I wasn't doing everything I was told. And I was urinating in a little tube and, and on a little strip. And which didn't tell you what your blood sugar was. It just told you if you had no sugar in your, in your blood, a little bit or high. And remember, whatever in your urine was in your blood three hours prior. Mm-hmm. So I was on one set dose of insulin, no matter what my urine test showed. And, uh, you know, so it was the dark ages. And that's yeah. why I have uh, complications today. Yeah, and I think... Um I've appreciated you telling your stories and I think I've had to nudge you a little bit to talk about this because I think there is, um, for you and for a lot of people with complications, some shame, maybe some guilt, you know, should I have done this? Should I have done that? Um, and, and that can be tough, but I think there is some solace in the fact that you were doing what the medical community was telling you to do. It was the best that they knew how to do at the time and things have changed and gotten a lot better. Um, but a lot of times people have a hard time saying, gosh, you know, I went to the eye doctor and they found this, you know, a little bit of retinopathy because they feel like it's a personal failure, which I think is something very unique to diabetes that like, there's something about the constant measurement and the constant adjustments that makes you feel like if something goes wrong, it's your fault versus when you hurt your knee, well, actually, it was your fault. You were riding your bike. But, you know, some other <laughs> medical yeah. conditions and yeah. people just don't go there. You know, yeah. it's yeah. it's just something they got and they have to deal with. You've mentioned that. And, you know, I hear people all the time uh, with diabetes, like maybe have a public audience. and They'll say, I've had diabetes 20 years. 
uh, 30 years, I have no complications, and I'm happy for them. But they, they're they a little insensitive in the fact that how do you feel if you do have complications? Mm-hmm. So basically, it's it's always good. Thank you for helping me out of the closet. It's been very therapeutic, and um, I don't feel guilty anymore. Well, that's good. You know, it's like, listen, I had diabetes in the dark ages, and I feel good that I met some pretty good doctors as an undergraduate at UCLA and have had really good control at least the last decade and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm hoping that I can halt the progression. And and you have, and I think, you know, you do stress about every time you get your kidney function, you know, measured. And sometimes you ask me to look at it before you look yeah. at it because yeah. Yeah. every time it's something that you're worried about. Is it yeah. getting worse? And knock on wood, it really hasn't in years, if not, you know, a decade or more, it's been stable. So I think it's a good example of, are you happy that that's happened? No, but you're doing the best with your blood sugars and taking other medications to control it. And you can keep things in in good health. Yep. Yep. And everybody should feel, uh, I'd say confident that they could live a long and healthy life with diabetes. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit specifically, I guess, about the complication. So kind of broad categories you mentioned, we break them down into what we call microvascular, small blood vessel complications, and then macrovascular, large blood vessel complications. So micro is the small blood vessels in the eyes, um, in the kidneys, and then actually the nerves we put in, in that group too. And then macrovascular would be the bigger vessels in the heart. So like talking about heart attacks and strokes um, in your brain. So um, why high blood sugars mess up the blood vessels? There's lots of different kind of ways that this can happen. And But ultimately, when your blood sugars are high for a long period of time, it can just make the blood vessels not function properly. They kind of grow abnormally. They can become leaky. So the eyes are a really good example of that, where people can look in your eyes and actually see that you have like too many blood vessels there or the ones that are there are damaged and kind of leaking um, into the eye space. Um, And that is just, again, from just chronic high blood sugars um, that can damage the blood vessels. And that leads to issues. The same thing is going on in the kidney. The same thing can be happening kind of adjacent to the nerves. Um, but again, an important thing is that it's over years. Yeah, and I think it's really important to know that when they look under the microscope of people with type 1 diabetes, their eyes, their kidneys, their nerves, and type 2, it's the same what we call pathophysiology. So it's the same type of damage no matter what type of diabetes you have, which is why we promote good control in people with any type of diabetes. And the yeah, you know, I remember uh, a lecture I put together for the medical students, and it is complicated, but chronic high blood sugars damage the microvasculature, which feed important nutrients to the, the cells of the eyes, the kidneys, and nerves. And mm-hmm. so that's the, why they are affected. And, it's, and then there are other things that can make it worse, too, like high blood pressure, for example. So there's, it, gets, it gets complicated. Yeah. And again, we know that obviously controlling blood sugars helps reduce these. Um, but in the number seven, you know, isn't some kind of magical number. It comes from the DCCT. Really, people say, well, shouldn't I want my A1C to be normal, which is, you know, less than 5.7? No, because we, we showed in that study also that there is kind of a, a diminishing returns, that the difference in complications between an A1C of seven and 6.5 wasn't really that much different. However, back in those days, going from seven to 6.5, you had much more hypoglycemia. So seven was kind of landed on as a safe place that was achievable, 
to reduce complications without inducing more hypoglycemia. Now, if you're somebody who's out there and your A1C is six and you have like no hypoglycemia, more power to you. But if you're having a lot of hypos, you just need to find that right kind of sweet spot. Yeah, and for some of you that look at your own labs, which is pretty common these days, uh, the pathologist who's in charge of the lab puts the normal ranges for A1C. Normal is less than 5.7. And a lot of people think that normal range is what they should be at. Right. And they say, oh my God, my A1C is creeping up. It's 5.8 now. You know, there's a difference between the normal ranges for people without diabetes and the goals for people with diabetes. I think that's really important. You know, less than seven is awesome. Less than 7.5, you're, you're in a pretty darn good zone. Mm-hmm. Less than eight, you know, if you're the up closer to eight, then, you know, you start working on lifestyle or maybe look at medication. But I think that's a really good point that uh, the DCCT and many other studies that that critical level for complications microvascular starts around seven. Mm-hmm. So it's important that people get as close to that as they can without significant hypo. And we, now we have great tools to do that, both type one and type two. Yeah. And also keeping in mind that these studies, you know, are from large populations and they give you averages. And so you never know. So I just saw this patient who was probably about 35. He had type one since he was two and it had good control, according to him, you know, his whole life. His parents were taking care of him when he was a kid, et cetera. Um, and then went to get an eye exam and it had some retinopathy. It was just really angry. <laughs> he used the word angry. Um, that he had, you know, had good controls. A1C was around seven. How could he get eye disease? And unfortunately, there are some cases like that where people will have good control and they'll have, you know, an issue. And then the opposite is true sometimes also. People have A1Cs of, of 10 or so and not get complications. But in general, we yeah. know for sure that if you keep your A1C low, that you have a better odds of avoiding these things. Yeah. And I, I saw a patient yesterday. She was 37. She got type one when she was seven. And her last lab test showed that she was spilling excessive protein in her urine. And uh, when I told her, I called her up because she got it done after she left clinic. And you know, she she cried like crazy, and you know, she that's her first complication. Mm-hmm. But we caught it really early, uh, to the point where her uh, other kidney tests were normal. It's just the very beginning, and I got her hooked up with uh, nephrology, and they got her on an SGLT2 inhibitor as well as uh, an older blood pressure pill. Losartan, which also is helpful. So I'm confident she's going to do extremely well. But yeah, I think that's a really important story because I think the first complication is particularly difficult for people because it's like, oh, well, now here we go. Like this is now this is my kidneys. Now this is going to happen with my eyes, blah, blah, blah. And that's not necessarily true. In her case, depending on how much protein she has in her urine, that could actually revert to normal. Um, or at least stay stable. Yep. Um, she may never have issues with eyes or other, you know, things. So um, I think people feel like it's just the first step of, of many terrible things yeah. to come, and that's not that's not necessarily true either. Well, my 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 first one, I'll just mention it briefly because bringing back memories today is uh, in medical school. I have a good friend of mine. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He went into orthopedic surgery. Big burly guy, played rugby. So we had a softball game, and he gave me a big bear hug. Like he lifted me off the ground. Uh, and the next day I had a little blurry vision in my eye and I went to a retinologist in Sacramento, Dr. Peabody, I still remember his name. And he said, yeah, you got beginnings of diabetic retinopathy because apparently he's 
I squeezed some fluid out of these leaky blood vessels. So that was my first time in medical school, which was probably about 1980, which was uh, uh, only 10 years after I got diagnosed with type 1. But remember, I had terrible control for years. Then I went to the Jawson Clinic where I, I got fr my first uh, laser therapy, and that probably helped prevent progression also by a famous retinologist, Dr. Lloyd Ayala. So, yeah, my first one, it was like a real wake-up call. Yeah. Uh, and here I am in medical school, you know, pretty but also early. here you are now, you know, decades later, you know, seeing fine. I know you have issues that... You, you say know. I can't drive. <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do with your vision. That's why That's I got just a Tesla. Your, your skill I set. push home. I just yeah. goes right there. Um, but I think this is a good example that, you know, like with... I know it's something that you bothers you but that with therapy that you've able been able to maintain that is, is important so i think that reminds me kind of like starting to wrap up is that because this is such a, a tough subject complications people that have so much emotion wrapped up in it i always tell people when you do go get that eye exam um, i'll just use an eye exam as an example if your eyes are, are are healthy then celebrate that that you know that is you know means like years of hard work of and it's actually paying off that there's a moment that you should actually congratulate yourself or that you do have you know issues with your your eyes but you're getting it treated and it's been stable that's also something to actually celebrate i think that the trouble is when it's constantly a failure or fear or that you've done something wrong um but we just need to realize that there's moments to pat ourselves on the back. And we don't, I don't think, do that nearly enough for all the stuff that we have to do, all the medications, all the measuring, all the concern for ourselves and our family that, God, we should have some wins from time to time. And if you're keeping your complications at bay, that's certainly a win. Yeah, and I, I just add on to that, you know, be knowledgeable about your conditions. And I think our TCOID website is actually quite rich now mm -hmm. in our video vault. The more you know, the, the better conversations you can have with your caregiver. And I think it comes down to being knowledgeable and getting a healthcare professional that really knows what he or she is doing with the particular complication that you may be having. Absolutely. And that helps emotionally too. It helps you feel like you're in some, you have totally. some degree of control. And specifically, we did a, a podcast, the Diabetes Warranty Program, which goes into a, a lot more detail about how avoiding complications. We did a whole podcast on eye health. Um, and then on our website, we have all kinds of things on cardiovascular disease, kidney disease. If there's one specific area that you want to hear more about, um, trust me, we've got some information for you on it. So I think with that, you know, it, it is a little bit of a, of a heavy topic, but I think an important one. And we don't really talk about it enough. Maybe we kind of semi-intentionally avoid it. Yeah. Um, so it's good to kind of address it head on. And then just remind you guys, if you like our podcast, please like it, please share it. And again, we are not for profit. We're doing this with on our own dime. <laughs> so that's why we don't have ads um, or anything. So if you have uh, any inclination to donate, um, that's that, that is definitely appreciated so we can keep doing this. Yeah, appreciate that. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Good talk, and we'll uh, catch you guys on the next one. Take care.